AI is one of the hottest topics in technology today. Everyone is talking about it. But are we approaching the threshold where fintech merges into what was recently science fiction? What is a cognitive architecture, and how could it increase client engagement? And is it possible for AI to be stupid? All these questions and more will be answered on this episode of Wealth Management Today. This episode of Wealth Management Today is brought to you by Ezra Group Consulting. Broker-dealers are under tremendous pressure to retain and attract new advisors, and the technology ecosystem is a key part. Ezra Group Consulting is your go-to source for building the next generation of advisor and client experiences that will supercharge your firm's growth, increase user satisfaction, and reduce operating costs. If you're a broker-dealer and you want to leapfrog your competition, contact Ezra Group today for a free one-hour consultation and 10% off your first strategic planning project. Go to ezragroup.co, that's E-Z-R-A-G-R-O-U-P.co for more information. Hello again to everyone in the world of wealth tech, and welcome to another episode of the Wealth Management Today podcast. I am your host, Craig Eskowitz, and I'm a consultant who helps wealth management firms make better strategic decisions about their technology. On this show, I bring you the latest ideas from the brightest people, who are on the cutting edge of innovation in our industry. On the show, David Washell, CEO of AI Firm Responsive. Responsive is based in that uh, tech hub of Toronto, where we met when I was at the Collision Conference back in May. Great conference, I think 25,000 people, all kinds of technology, great place for innovation and really seeing across industries, across uh, verticals, what's coming, a great view of, of the, the short-term technology future. Uh, we had dinner. Dave and I had dinner with a, a group of people. We talked about a lot of technology topics and a lot of music topics because Dave uh, and his wife Holly are part-time DJs. Uh, but the music conversation is for a different episode. This is the tech and mostly AI episode. And I'm calling this episode Zen and the Art of Software Design. It's a play on the title of the famous book, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, which I recommend you should read. Published back in 1974 by Robert Piersig. Little known fact, Piersig received 126 rejections before finding a publisher for his book. It went on to be a bestseller, international bestseller, selling over 5 million copies. Just goes to show you, they got to keep trying. Don't give up. So in this Zen and the Art of Software Design episode, I'm not going to hold you back. We're going to kick it off with Dave Washell. And today on the Wealth Management Today podcast, I am... Very happy to have David Washell, the founder and CEO of Responsive. And he's talking to us live from the Tuscany region of Italy. Hey, Dave. Hey, Craig. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for taking the time on your vacation overseas to talk uh, on my podcast. I'm impressed. Well, what could go better after tiramisu? (laughs) Right, man. Tiramisu, not just any tiramisu, but tiramisu made in Italy and served there. It's delicious. Yeah, loving it. Now, can you say the the name of the town you're in? I believe it's Traquanda, and it's it's close to Multipachano. I don't know where either of those is. I'm going to Google Maps it after after we're done here, and then be jealous because I'm in New Jersey. (laughs) Not quite as nice. The rolling hills of New Jersey. I mean, yes, yes, exactly. The uh, the lovely (laughs) alpine meadows and 
And, uh, you know, I was going to tour the vineyards of uh, central New Jersey the other day <laughs> and get a pina grigia. Take an espresso, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that too. Yeah, it's Starbucks, like everyone does. All right, so enough uh, of the jealousy of your vacation time. And uh, now I'm going to impose on your vacation time and ask you a whole bunch of questions. Uh, I love it. Let's go. Yeah. Cool. So uh, if you can, in two minutes, give us an overview of, of your company, which you are the founder and CEO of, Responsive. Absolutely. We're a wealth management focused B2B software company built around the idea that wealth management can be optimized for everybody, for uh, the end client, for uh, the wealth advisor, the relationship manager, and for the business itself that's concerned with wealth management. And underpinning this idea is, is a core belief that client data can be used to create a better relationship and better results. So if I was giving you the tagline, I'd say that uh, responsive boosts wealth advisor productivity and decision-making. And we specifically do that with uh, next best actions. That's a great tagline. Every advisor wants to boost their productivity. Absolutely. So with next best actions, is that something you feed into other systems and what kind of data do you need to gather in order to determine what the next best action is for a specific advisor? We view, you know, the personal financial data as, as primal. And we view what happens in time in personal financial data from a behavioral point of view is very primal. Uh, but we can bring in other data as well into our processes. But the goal is to give, you know, uh, the advisor opportunities to better serve the client, even if it just means checking in. Some of these next best actions are so simple that you could write them on the back of a napkin. Other ones are, are more complex and, and more subtle. But for us, it's, it's the, the core focus is, you know, we don't want to be brain in a vat. We can plug into different systems. We could plug into a Salesforce or whatever. But we really do believe that there's value inside of having a full feedback loop that is used and designed that, that enables better decision making. And, and we view kind of one of the problems with wealth management and all these technologies is kind of this fragmented data, fragmented software, therefore fragmented and potentially incoherent service. So uh, we have our own hybrid advisor dashboard that we can, you know, we can build into another systems dashboard, or we can serve things through API as well. But our first choice is to kind of be able to control the cooking and have uh, a full human in the loop system. So you're going off on, on areas that I wanted to ask you. So fragmented data. So data is, is one of the keys to, to AI being useful and, and having good data and be able to understand what the data is telling you. So how do we solve the problem of fragmented data in wealth management? The first part of that solution is you know, to back off of language like data lakes and, and sort of this like, there's this perfect objective framework for doing any kind of analysis. And it's to think about how do you represent the, the financial life of a client in, in terms that make sense to them and in terms that make sense to the advisor. So something we believe in is, and, and something we do not just believe is, is the construction of what we call the, the wealth persona. And so this is a way of sort of not just aggregating and pushing data together in some store, but actually creating a representation and a framework 
which makes reasoning on client data both easy from when an advisor looks at it and from a, a machine learning point of view. Another buzzword. Yeah, I hate these buzzwords. Um, I know, I know, but okay. Sci- I'll say mathematical science for data. How about that? Cool. <laughs> for statistics. Yeah, we can, we can geek out. I mean, I've, I've got a degree in computer science, so I'm always a stickler for using the right terms. And when some people use, they throw around these AI terms, like they're um, you know, auditioning for a, for a play or something, they're throwing around every term they can possibly <laughs> squeeze in. Uh, it just doesn't, it doesn't fit. But when you say wealth personas, can you be more specific, more specific about what you mean by a wealth persona? Yeah, so like I think at the basic level, the kitchen table level, and, and the way a lot of us think about it is we can look at a client in terms of their balance sheet, their aggregate balance sheet, and we can look at a client in terms of their aggregate cash flow. And we can look at these at high-level categories, and then we can, we can also break these down into sort of semantic classes that might be different from the kind of like hard accounting terms we use and might be closer to how people think about how they store and spend money. So I'm being a little bit cryptic because that's because part of this is, is, is you know, how we think about it and, and, yeah, and man, how we think about it differently. Just come on and say it. <laughs> speak speak um, plainly on the podcast today, Dave. You can, you can look at behavior within, the, you, you, can, you can translate accounting language into behavioral language. And then you can start to look at, you know, are there things that people do in time on a recurrent basis? Are there interactions between things people do in time? And then do all these things add up to um, making it easy to predict certain kinds of events or to identify certain kinds of people? <laughs> okay. So this, this sounds very, I mean, for me, this is very clear. Um, but, but I think, uh, you know, if, if I had Logan here, he'd say, we're just, we're just getting the ingredients ready to cook a good meal. And, um, and, and there's a way to frame things. I understand. The title of this podcast, I'm going to make it based on one of the things you listed in your list of things to talk about. And I really like sure. it. it jumped out at me as that is going to be the title of this podcast. So, David, tell me, why is AI stupid? <laughs> because people are stupid. <laughs> why are people stupid, David? Because, because they want to um, solve something before they've framed the problem. And what this can lead to is unexpected consequences. So I'll give you a couple examples. And, and, and you're a computer science guy, so you probably know about optimization and backtesting and data and, and how the road to hell is paved with good backtests. Yeah, some version of that adage. Um, I mean, look, look. Um, so we have something like, I'll use an outside example, outside of our discipline. We have something like Facebook or like even YouTube, okay? And these systems, they aggregate all kinds of end-user data. But the one thing they're doing and they're optimizing in AI or machine learning or we'll just say gain-boosting, to be real about it, is they're gain-boosting on engagement, right? And engagement can be that people enjoy something. Engagement can be that it pisses them off and they rage and and and... And so on and so forth. But it seems like the conclusion out there is that 
this optimization of engagement is actually creating divisiveness in politics and actually mm -hmm. bad cognitive behavior or bad psychology. So right. this is an unintended concept. They don't care how yeah. they boost. Yeah. They don't, it's yeah. So they boost. Whatever, whatever is uh, worth it to get the gain, the ends always justify the means. They don't care. Yeah. So we're, we're boosting engagement and then this creates a lot of things maybe we don't like even as a society, right? So if we, if we translate that back into the banking context, we have a lot of people patting themselves on the back about product recommendation tools and targeting and segmentation and selling all kinds of products. Some of them might be debt, maybe, or credit cards based on all kinds of data. And so there's a question, you know, of what this kind of gain boosting, what kind of impact it might have on, for one, the risk of an organization and for two, the health of its clients. So that's like an open thing to think about. And, and obviously like behind everything is, 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 you know, interest rate sensitivity and central bank action. Mm -hmm. um, but I think during our next market event, there's going to be a little bit of excitement and disappointment around some of the slam dunks people have been having in gain boosting on, on recommending banking products and these kinds of things. And people will start after post post game, they'll realize, wow, we recommended this product and we recommended it for this completely diabolical or idiotic reason would be my expectation. Mean like, um, the way Wells Fargo boosted gain boosted the number of accounts they opened by opening up accounts for people without telling them they're opening up accounts. Yeah. Yeah. So this is, these are kind of the devils of automation. Like forget AI, just like forget machine learning and advanced space chats. Like just, automation can create all kinds of devils. So I think right now we're sort of at peak confidence and peak slam dunk mode. And in the coming years, there's going to be a lot of like, oh, geez, we actually let that happen. Looking, looking back on things, we'll say that. Yeah, when we're in like, when we're sitting in 2025, people are going to be like, that was just the same way people are looking at Facebook now and all these kinds of things and being like, man, that was bonkers. It's going to be a similar situation with a lot of the application of AI to I think you know, you apply AI to a million people that you have a kind of burden of responsibility to think about what the impact of that might be, right? Or I mean, billion. if you're designing it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Try that. Right, right back at you, Facebook. You're there you go. A million people, two billion people. So AI is stupid. Is it stupid? When you say AI is stupid, is it because the people who are developing the AI are stupid? Or is it because the people who are using the AI aren't framing the problem they want to solve with properly? Software. Um, there's, there's, we can, we can spin this different ways, right? So one is AI stupid. It will do exactly what you set it up to do. Mm -hmm. I want right? to spin this like it's not, game boosts the listeners to my podcast. Yeah, 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 exactly. Like it's not a magical fairy that like solves your problems and like at least the at least the 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 cognitive architectures we have right now they're very limited, you know, and and they will do what they have been designed and set out to do to a troubling fault. And I so you. Even, I have to stop you before you keep going. Uh, can you yeah. explain for those in the audience, uh, what is a cognitive architecture? Cognitive architecture. Okay. So this is a word that, that smart people are using now because the word AI has become such, so beaten up that it doesn't mean anything anymore. I'm going to start. Using <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so in the old days, what AI used to mean was that you would design a system to solve some kind of problem. 
and you'd, you'd represent the domain and you'd represent ways of thinking or planning, not, not even from like a machine learning or deep learning point of view, but even from an algorithmic point of view, you'd, you'd frame a problem intelligently so that a machine mind could proceed through the problem space and solve it. This is like good old fashioned, what people call good old fashioned AI. Now in the new school, uh, we've, we've come a long way since the 60s beyond basic algorithms. We do have all these new great breakthroughs. Cognitive architectures can be complex systems that organize how sensory information comes into some kind of mind, um, how that mind will break it apart, uh, remember some of it, act on some of it, um, and, and so on and so forth. So, so cognitive architectures are kind of like the next generation of going beyond the sort of basic machine learning, deep learning, boosting, optimizing one industrial problem into like creating minds that do in fact do mind-like things. Or making AI more intelligent or more able to do things that are productive versus non? I mean, if we're just talking about productivity, like there's, there's going to be a lot of productivity that's done just by applying the sort of machine learning quotidian uh, AI we have right now, TensorFlow, to industrial problems that are well represented. Well, it's not going to Cognitive architectures is... We're going to lose half the audience if you start yeah. talking about TensorFlow. <laughs> the, the sort of cognitive, would you say the cognitive architecture is more of training the AI based on natural language, or I'm just telling the AI like if it was my assistant how to do something rather than training it on a whole bunch of data? Yeah, I think it's, I think the sort of the litmus is like, does it remember things? Does it reason about objects in a world? Does it relate sort of the meaning or, or behaviors of objects to other objects? Mm -hmm. So the things we'd start to really call mind, you know, um, and these are the things that people in robotics deal with. And, and, and some of the deep learning people have come up with uh, deep learning topologies that start to resemble these kinds of cognitive architectures, like networks that can represent complex hierarchical game states and, and play video games or, or interact with environments, but you know, the, and things like transfer learning, but these are, this is sort of like the, the real meat. And I think in the coming years to bring it back to what we're talking about, um, having cognitive architectures around the problem of wealth management and banking, because people's lives are complex. There are things that happen in time. Um, you need to understand that some things are the same as others and some things aren't, and you need to remember. So it's not just as simple as, you know, pushing data into a machine and getting a product recommendation. It's, you know, what happened to this person three years ago? What did they say? And what are they, what are they going to probably want to do in five years? Right. Hmm. So moving from cognitive architectures to, is, is, so is FinTech becoming more like sci-fi, like science fiction? Are we seeing more of those type of things that we predicted many years ago that would be science fiction-like, and now they're coming into the fintech world? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, there's, there's lots of things we can posit. Uh, there's lots of things that are happening. Um, I mean, it's interesting because, like, banking is, 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 I think, like, one of the oldest new technologies. When we think about how the creation of banking technology has radically changed the world, from the creation of government debt to the creation of bursts and markets, creation of you know collateralized loans, like all these things have just had a huge impact on the course of our civilization. And now, for the first time, the sort of the system itself is is going through this huge renovation, where the infrastructure around banking is no longer, I think, an advantage. 
just just having infrastructure, just having pipes. And and you see this when the card is played weakest when you when you see a banker say, well, we we have regulate we have the regulatory advantage. I think that's like a very weak card to play. I think what's interesting is, you know, if you if you look at the history of of financial transactions and the way they've evolved over maybe like let's say 10,000 years. Let's not talk about the last 10 years because that's boring. Um, and the kinds of societies we've the had last, from like... The last 10,000 years. <laughs> the, the last 10,000 years of... Well, no, the last 10,000 years of financial technology, right? So we could start with like in Sumerian empires where uh, they started accounting with little small clay objects. Mm-hmm. And they'd store them in temples and they'd, they'd refresh these like, you know, on the solstice or the equinox as a way of sort of gathering and redistributing foodstuffs and products, right? So this is the begin this is the first spreadsheet. It's a little this clay. It's not so bad actually. Yeah, it's not so bad, right? So but the, the the impact that this innovation had on societies was massive, right? This has created the world's first empires. Um and the, and the world the world's first temple societies, all kinds of things. You can fast forward to uh Britain's creation of 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 um companies right securitizing companies like what if hey guys what if we like all chipped in our money and we bought an enterprise and then that enterprise sent ships to india right, right. these are huge innovations so i think we're we're, we're now sitting at i, I think at the, at the eve of, of a similar kind of moment and an inflection point and it has to do with like everything being financialized and financial decisions being automated and i don't think anybody like nobody understands what that's what that means like, like there's going to be computers doing financial transactions with each other, probably more than human beings making decisions about all this stuff. Well, the question is, do we need judges and courts for AI? Because if AI, are, if, if different programs are making these decisions, could they be responsible for their actions rather than the people who program them? I, I think certainly that that is what a lot of, nation states will try to do at least in in the west i don't know if that will be the ideology of say countries like china that 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 don't necessarily have the same point of view we have about what society should be or how it should function but i think um if you look at the regulation coming out of europe and the way people are thinking about it yes they want there to be some human decision maker that's accountable to again these algorithms that have that can have a massive impact and so from our point of view, regulation and explainability and governability is more of a product than the, than the decision science. Hmm. I've heard the term systems of intelligence being thrown around a lot lately, mostly by people who I don't think understand what it means. So can you <laughs> what a system of intelligence is and how is it different than a system of record? Okay, sure. Like, let's start with the system of record because I think that's... that's really easy to explain. And I can go back to my, my Babylonian temple. Okay. So in my Babylonian temple, I bring in a bunch of grain because I tax the people of, you know, Mesopotamia. Mm-hmm. And I record, I record all the grain that came in and all the cattle came in on my little clay tablets. That's the system. Of cuneiform now we call that sales. Yeah. Yeah. And now we have sales on the, on the clay, right? Yeah, exactly. And now we have we have Salesforce or Microsoft or you know whatever SAP, Microsoft Clay these systems that just yeah Microsoft Clay. All this stuff gets written down. So 
everything that goes on with a business or with a government or with any kind of human activities, it's getting, it's getting logged in some ledger so that some person can theoretically look at it later, whether they're a regulator or whether they're a data scientist or whether it's a piece of customer information that gets rendered on, on, a, uh, on, a, on a mobile app. So that's a system of record. It's our way of remembering what's going on with the thing at a point in time. That's the easiest way of saying it. So a system of intelligence then is, is the actual uh, sort of organization and process that, that makes use of that data for some kind of human endeavor, okay? So an easy one to point at is like Uber, right? So Uber is storing all kinds of information about people who want rides and drivers and where they are and how much they paid and where they're going. Um, but the system of intelligence is the thing that actually is like, hey, person over here in uh, Fort Greene, Brooklyn, needs to get to uh, Chelsea. And they need, you know, and, and we're, gonna, we're gonna tell them it costs this much and then they're gonna say yes. So all of this sort of the application state, the intelligence around making Uber run, that's a system of intelligence. So in the old days, you know, people would, we just have to call each other on the phone and would know the business get things done. Now we have this magical called software, which can handle that intelligence for us. And when we add AI on top, it just starts to absorb more and more of the decision-making capacity of the things that people used to do in these organizations. So would system of intelligence be an overlay on top of the system of record? Yeah. The system of record is the memory, and the system of intelligence is the decision maker. I think in the easiest, in the clearest terms. And is that something you're building at Responsive? I will say that we, yes, our focus is on that. So I can, I can get down into all the vendor language around like plugging into this and integrating into that, but that's, we can talk mm -hmm. about like that. What we're really focusing on doing is, can we bring more intelligence to the advisor? And can we bring more intelligence to the enterprise? So these are sort of the two users. And, and, and obviously the end client is an important user in our system, mm -hmm. but we are targeting an environment where maybe the end client doesn't even have to look at a screen, they're just dealing with their advisor. Can a system of intelligence help a firm be more proactive instead of reactive? Absolutely. I, absolutely. I think, I think there's just, there's a million things that don't even require all this fancy stuff. Like, like I said, back of the napkin stuff, uh, getting your house in order, connecting the dots, just showing a full view of a client in a way that haptically makes sense to the advisor. Um, you know, we've looked at a couple of products in market that compete with us and we've looked at ourselves and we still feel like there's a long way to go on just like how to show who a client is to a wealth advisor. And there's all this legacy thinking around how should we look at a client's portfolio? How should we look at their life? Through these kind of old spreadsheets and tables and pie charts and mountain charts. Mm -hmm. We think there's, there's a different view of how you want to look at a client. And so I, I'd say that plugs into the system intelligence side, but at a more, I mean, if there's one thing for people to take away, it's just think about how do you represent the life of a client to an advisor? Mm -hmm. How do you do that? What's the best way to do that? Now, and I, I'm not confident that that has been done at a great level yet. Mm -hmm. And it's not that exciting. It's not as exciting as AI, but I think it's really a fundamental question. That's more of a visualization of the client? 
that's something we believe in. Like we believe in, we believe in sort of visualizing something before applying boosting to it or implying applying intelligence to it. So you can, you can talk to like, you can talk to planners, you can talk to portfolio managers, right. And they have the things they like to look at, right. And the things they like to do. And these are, these are industrial processes that were created in maybe the sixties or seventies or eighties. And they make people comfortable and sure they work. But something that I personally believe is, is that there is a more woke way of looking at data and visualizing it and organizing it and thinking about it that comes before you do any of this stuff we're used to doing or before you do any AI. So that, that sounds like a process that we do. as a, uh, I run a management consulting firm. and We tell clients a lot, you've got your existing processes but don't just build, buy a new system and replicate your existing processes if they're not the best way to do things. You built these processes over many years and they may be related to old ways of doing business. You should really look at a new way of doing it, then bring in a new system rather than the other way around. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and, and look, I, there's wisdom in the way things were built. So we don't just throw things out. We don't just say that's garbage. But when you think about the way people can interact with things, the way they can look at things now, there's new opportunities. And especially when you think about how an advisor looks at, I don't know, 100, 150 people or households, maybe they want to look at 300, maybe they want to look at 300 in context, right? So how can, how can a person or an organization look at and be aware of, you know, 300 people at an advisor level and how can they be aware of maybe a million people at an organization level, right? So it's a question of how is it's no longer about like going through this rote process of we do this industrial thing and we crank it up. It's where are you drawing awareness to? It, how do you draw awareness to a client into a particular situation or event? And how do you represent that in a way that an advisor can look at and understand very rapidly and then investigate okay, I'm going to drill down and ask questions and then maybe ask, right? So this is, this is our secret. I don't think it's that special, but I think it, it just requires the kind of discipline to not shapes and fads and, and sort of all the, the, the shiny objects. It's just, just to focus on this one job of how do we decision-making. I want to take a little break from this episode to talk to you about one of my favorite sponsors, the Invest in Others Foundation. Invest in Others is a nonprofit. You can find them at investinothers.org. And they look to raise money and give out awards to charities that are sponsored by financial advisors. So it's financial advisors, uh, favorite charities, charities that they spend a lot of time supporting. So Invest in Others looks to get sponsorships from the industry and funnel that money to advisors' favorite charities. I really like this, this charity uh, and this nonprofit. I think you should take a look at it. Again, investinothers.org. They've got a couple other programs. One is a grants for good program. Uh, again, delivering money to different needy organizations and needy groups. They're also starting a corporate awards program, which is going to be a little bit different, but still within the industry. Uh, another way for financial services, uh, wealth management, corporations to help uh, donate money to people in need. So I really like Invest in Others. I think you should take a look at it. Invest in Others. Let me spell this for you. 
I-N-V-E-S-T-I-N-O-T-H-E-R-S dot O-R-G. So when you're talking about where are you drawing awareness to, can you give me an example of where a, the existing wealth management processes are drawing aware, the advisor's awareness to where you think it's wrong and that it should be changed? I think there's just so much um, focus on the portfolio. And I'm, I'm a second generation like manager and alpha producer, and I love alpha and I believe in alpha and I think it's cool. But you look at a lot of the things that are sold to advisors and it's like portfolio doodads. There, there's just a lot of software around messing with portfolios. And, and I'm a second generation alpha disciple and producer. I believe in alpha, I believe in research, I believe in portfolio management. But when you're looking at the division of labor, there's just a, a lot of a lot of time goes into portfolio messing around, for lack of a better word. Okay, so that's a self-inflicted wound. Um, I think there's two other drains on advisors' thinking and time. One is just general communications jam up. So sometimes the squeakiest wheels are getting the grease when it should be the sauce. And there's not necessarily a way for an advisor to deal with just like so much email and crap all the time. If you're a wealth advisor, it's like, it's like mind blowing to be able to just deal with the, the, the raw communication bandwidth. So that's another one. Like, can you find a way to, to really focus on what you need to focus on and what client you need to focus on? So, so cleaning that channel up. And then, the, and then the third one is, is, is sort of compliance and just housekeeping and data shipping. And so when we look at that, we say that portfolio management should be about policy, policy design, and then mapping policy into a person's life. And when we look at comms and signals and jam up, it's about how can we create a tabula rasa that when the time comes, the advisor's just looking at what is really the most important thing, right? Like that's like the, I can't remember who said that. The most important for, thing is to not forget the most important thing. So I think that's like a good mantra for, for wealth advisors who have so much work to do all the time in a million different directions. Yeah, and then the other thing is just cleaning up all the bullshit work, right? And like there's a lot of good work being done there. Like not having to, to carry the water from point A to point B, just having that be a policy. So can we transform repetitive work into policy? Mm-hmm. And can we get rid of noise, right? Mm-hmm. So you, you just mentioned uh, repetitive work, and you know, AI is taking over a lot of repetitive work, as is, as any automation tools and software has been doing for for as soon as since software was invented, it's been taking over repetitive work. Uh, I listened to a good another podcast from uh, Andreessen Horowitz, and they were talking about how jobs aren't directly impacted by AI, it's the tasks that make up the jobs. The jobs are just bundles of tasks and that AI will impact the repetitive tasks and then allow the companies to decide where to deploy the human capital towards the most valuable tasks. So do you see this as being the same thing happening? Do you see the same thing happening in wealth management? Yeah, I think absolutely. I think, you know, I I believe history always produces winners and losers. And I think the winners are going to be those people that figure out where the, what the real value drivers of, of their relationships are and where they can apply 
a lot of leverage to the human capital they have. And then beyond that, how can they convert their workforce for this newer model, you know? And so we're super long, we're super long uh, human capital and wealth advisors and real people providing wealth management. We're, we're, we're incredibly long that, like we're all in on that thesis. Mm-hmm. Um, but w- what we think the, w- w- where the winners and losers is going to be made is, are, are people going to move to where the, what the market is demanding of them? And are they going to cut the bullshit as quickly as possible and focus on what winning looks like? And so, yeah, 100%, I agree with that thesis. And, and, and it's not just a question of buying a piece of software when it comes across your desk. We talk to people and they're like, well, this is a commodity and that's a commodity. And well, there's a million people doing that and we can do that anytime. And I'm like, okay, well, are you doing it yesterday? And they're like, no. And the thing about not doing it yesterday is that nobody in your organization is learning and nobody is evolving. In different technology cycles, that has probably been acceptable. But I think in this next technology cycle, that is a really unacceptable behavior. And those who are learning fast and trying fast and failing are going to do much better than the people who think they're going to pick it off the shelf in three years. So you want your, your advice is to get ahead of things, even if you're going to make mistakes, but get onto it now rather than... Yeah, like, and, that, and, that, and that's so hard for organizations because people are on these like quarterly review timelines and their bonus. And you know, it's so hard to walk in and say, okay, this... Yeah, like, and what do you often see? Like, what was that thing that just got canceled? They, they canceled that engagement app. Was it, was it, was it Chase or JP Morgan? They had some app and they canceled it. Oh, yeah. They, they had and a, they were, Chase had a bank, an, e, an online bank, a challenger bank. Well, not really a challenger, but an online bank that they... That yeah. They, and, yeah. And so they, they, they brought it out like four quarters ago and then they canceled it now. It was and, called Finn. Yeah. Yeah. Finn. And so people couldn't tolerate the failure, right? They just had to burn it down. And there's probably like uh, probably like 300 people who were involved in that product project who like learned a ton of stuff and are really smart and can see down the track. And I don't know, maybe it was the right thing to do, and maybe they're just gonna do it. I don't know, but I mean, at least at a, an allegoric level, this idea that you're gonna have a slam dunk, and if you don't have a slam dunk, you have to like choke it out behind the behind the shed. Mm-hmm. I, I just really disagree with that. You know, like the. the the, the people who are going to win in this are going to try a bunch of different things and keep iterating and, and keep getting bloody noses and, and black eyes um, until they get it right. And they're going to keep learning from and keep learning from the human capital. I couldn't agree with you more, Dave. I, mean, uh, I, I do some speaking at conferences and one of my slides shows the Google graveyard talking about innovation, having to fail fast and Google. I don't know if you've seen this website. It's called killed by Google. It just lists all the apps that Google has either started and then shut down or bought and shut down since, since they started. And there's 165 apps, software, services, hardware that have been shut down by Google. So you think that's 165 failures, but then they couldn't have created the incredible successes they have with Android, Gmail, Chrome, uh, on, you know, on and on their, their, their successes if they didn't have they didn't go through all those failures. Absolutely. It's, it's the Ray Dalio thing about pain, right? Like mm-hmm. pain's there and it helps you learn. And then you iterate and you improve what you're doing and you do better next time. And 
that's I think that's like the, it's a, it's an emotional thing. It has nothing to do with how smart you are or what school you went to or or how many you know PhDs you have in your innovation lab. If 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 your team can't emotionally deal with that prospect of failing and having to wear egg on your face for five minutes and it's going to be difficult. And, and I think that's, it's a, it's a, it's a weird spiritual thing, but I think it's like the most important thing, you know? And I think that's a lot of, that's the difference between startups, not that startups are the answer to everything or that they're omniscient or anything, but that is, I think a, a cultural difference between sort of startups and incumbents. And, and that to me is the, I think the most important thing. So the incumbents that learn how to do that are going to clean up. Somebody said that experience is what you gain when you don't get what you want. <laughs> That's not when in my podcast, I have another series of podcasts called Winners of Wealth Tech. And it's more of an interview about the people, different people and how they got to where they are. And one of the questions I like to ask is what's your favorite failure? Because that's you know, you learn fa- your failures and your successes. My favorite failure. Oof. Well, I'm not asking you. You're not a winner of wealth tech. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Go ahead. You can answer that question. No, no, no. I, I don't think we've been around enough to have a famous failure yet. I mean, we, we, you know, ask me in a couple of years and I'll have a good answer. I, I probably won't be able to give you a good, honest answer right now anyway. So uh, the person who said experience is what you got when you didn't get what you wanted is Howard Marks. <laughs> what is the innovation? So we're talking about innovation and disruption here a bit. Uh, at least that's why what I call it when I'm giving presentations. Uh, so, what is the innovation event horizon, and why does nobody really know anything about it? Yeah, yeah. So, it, it, it's, innovation event horizon is kind of like I mean, if, if if there's any geeks out there who are familiar with you know astrophysics and like black holes, it's in astrophysics. It's it's the point at which no matter or light or even information from that matter can escape a black hole. So it's why black holes are black holes. There's just this sort of radius out from the gravitational center of the black hole. And, and once it goes in, nothing comes out. And so I have this theory that as, as much as people pay McKinsey and Accenture um, and Boston Consulting Group, that there really is an innovation event horizon. And it's sort of this, it's this uh, point at which People don't understand what happens beyond that point. And as, as smart as they want to say they are, and as much as they think they know, they don't understand. So like, like a couple, like really, like an obvious one is like the singularity. So like when, when machines have intelligence, it's like orders of magnitude beyond the human mind. They're able to like replicate themselves and like, you know, do things that we don't even understand. That's like that's like an innovation event horizon. We don't know what life is going to be like after computers are way way smarter than us. That's an obvious one. Now, if you were sitting in like, if you were sitting in like, um, you know, the Holy Roman Empire in like the 1300s, and someone came to you and said, you know, we're gonna there's going to be this machine that can reprint uh, the Bible as many times as you want to reprint it. That person would not be able to, to know about the Protestant Reformation, Industrial Revolution, the replication of knowledge that was enabled by the Gutenberg printing press. Okay, that's like a, that's an innovation event horizon. So right now, um, because we're so close to that first event we talked about, that first event that I talked about might be 50 years away. It might be 100 years away. It might be 10 years away. Um, and, and again, the, the impact of just being in a global network and having almost all of human life recorded 
and then the ability to make an infinite number of decisions or, or for the purposes of the human economy and human organization and infinite number of decisions, we don't really know what, what that means. And we don't know what that means as human beings and societies. We don't know what that means even as business people who are working in a particular uh, vertical. So, and, and I think it just, it just requires a little humbleness on everybody's part to say that they don't really understand what's going to happen. And I will be the first person to say that I don't know what's going to happen. Like, I don't know what the impact of, of, of blockchain securitizing everything is going to be and the ability for all kinds of cross-border payments and, you know, micropayments, like even that, that's not even AI. I don't know what the impact of that's going to be. I can imagine a bunch of things like, you know, maybe the mafia will create Bitcoins and people will be able to invest in like dark corporations that are completely ungovernable or people will be able to create headless horsemen corporations that answer to nobody but are on the blockchain or, you know, any number of these things, right? So that's one version of the innovation event horizon. Another one is, is more, I think, practical for organizations to think about. And I had a conversation with, I believe it was the director of human-centric AI at Fujitsu. And he was like, I keep bringing people all this stuff and all these ideas. And I talk to the smartest people in the world and I present it and I like even pre-chew it for them. And then they kind of just look at me like they don't know what I'm talking about. And that's because like people can't, most people can't understand things until there's like a bunch of hashtags and there's a bunch of research and there's a bunch of talking, like talking about it already. So a lot of organizations can't even like absorb the innovation that's already out there. So there's an event horizon for these organizations to, for how much innovation they can actually ingest. I like that. And for those people who are really geeky, when they hear of Event Horizon, they'll think of the, the movie with Lawrence Fishburne and uh, Sam Neill. That's in the, in the 90s. Oh, that's, that's one, of the best, one of the best genre films ever made. It's Solaris meets The Shining. It's like yeah. a concept movie, dream come true. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's got a cult following, which I'm hoping my podcast becomes one day. So you were talking about um, aesthetics and, and religion a bit. So uh, talk a little bit, bit about Zen aesthetics and software design. <laughs> the concept I like the best is uh, mono no aware, which is, which is loosely translated to like the pathos of things. So this is sort of like when you look at something long enough and you really kind of clear your mind of like your own preconceptions of it, uh, what you want it to be, what you don't want it to be, what somebody said about it, all the stuff around, all the things that you're bringing, all the luggage you're bringing to something. You kind of see the thing for itself. And this is really hard to do. It's hard to do in life. It's hard to do in software. It's hard to just see the thing as it stands and, and really um, cleanse yourself of the need to be right or cleanse yourself of the need to be smart. And so I think in software... It's sort of like a humbleness to look at your user, to look at not the hero you're going to be by delivering them a piece of software, but the sort of troubles they have and the things that worry them and the problems they have. And I think in finance too, like forget software. In finance, this is a big problem, right? Um, We all want to be innovation leaders. We all want to be very, very smart compared to the other MDs and the other VPs. Right. But at the end of the day, what we're dealing with is this infrastructure that everybody lives their life on. And that's a big deal, right? 
when we're building software and we're building transformation and innovation for the lives of millions or billions of people, as you said, we have to come to it with a kind of seriousness and humbleness. And I dare say a kind of sadness that allows us to do the right thing. And, and perhaps you're getting a bit of the masters of fine arts tonight, but, um, sure. Why not? You know, if, 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 if we look at it, yeah, if we look at insurance, right? Like insurance is a bunch of things, right? It's, it's all kinds of technology and processes and compliance and people in suits. But fundamentally, insurance is uh, sold because people are afraid of loss. And loss is so troubling that it, the human mind can't even uh, approach it. And so we buy an annuity. Right? So this is what I'm talking about when I talk about mono right? the, the pathos, pathos of things. What is the thing really? And, and why is it there? And what is the experience of the people involved in it? And how can software represent that? Software there's, add there's a, melancholy, or should software understand being melancholy? I think it should. Yeah, I think we're often afraid to 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 represent things in our software that aren't like killing it or winning it, you know. Mm. <laughs> but an, another easy, another very easy thing to do is there's a there's a Japanese director called Ozu, and what he does is in, in every scene when he sets up a shot, he puts the camera in a low and human position. So when you're watching the films, you feel like you're sitting in the room with the people um, who, who, who are in the film. So I think taking on the role of the people that you're designing the software for and taking it on in earnest and talking to them and having conversations. So I'm very fortunate right now. I have a young employee, Charlie, who's in, in Helsinki, Finland, talking to one of our clients. And he's sitting there and he's embedded with them and he's going through their experience with the software. So I think that commitment to what, what your users actually going to do and being ready for them to not like what you've already done and to respond to that. To get them to, to get ready for them not to like what you've done? Well, just, just to, to mentally be ready for that and not be defensive, right? Like you might have a great idea and you think it's great, but it, and no matter how much time you spent on it, it doesn't mean it's the right idea. Hmm. The right idea is a process. You have to get through it. And you're not sure, right? You're uncertain. Isn't that the most precious thing about life is it's uncertainty? Exactly, exactly. And it's something that we're all afraid to say, I don't know, or I'm not sure yet. And I think that it's, it's invaluable when you're investigating and when you're getting through that first layer, right? Mm -hmm. Isn't that something like the way machine learning works? You don't really know. You're uncertain as to what the results are going to be. You're hoping for some patterns yes. to identified and to help you, but you don't really know. Yes, and even if you get the results you want, you should not be confident that the reason that, that that learning process is doing what it's doing is because it understands it. <laughs> right, it's confirmation bias. It may have just come out the way you want it to, but it's really not the right result. Yes, exactly. Because maybe your, your data is, well, I don't, I don't want to use the word bias because bias for computer science has a different meaning than for social science. Uh, but maybe your data is not complete or doesn't represent the, the, the target data set of people who the output will be impacting. Or your modeling coincided things that you think are the reason that mm. you're getting it right. Indeed. Uh, one, one thing or other thing we wanted to mention was uh, things that go bump in the AI night. So what's, what's scaring you about AI? Oh, I mean, how why do we want to take that question? Do we want to take that like to everything or to, to finance or, I mean, well, I, I keep coming back to my game boosting of my podcast. So whatever you think will game boost most my engagement with my users, you talk, you can talk <laughs> my, my, my listeners. Right? 
Um, I'm leaving it open to you, Dave. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, there's a, there's a there's a a cyberneticist or the the man who ter- coined the term uh, cybernetics, this guy mm-hmm. Norbert Weiner. Sure. And he did a lot of incredible writing in like the in like the sixties, right? About not dianetics, future of automation. Cybernetics. <laughs> yeah, not, this is it's very different. I'm not going to get you to do a personality. There's no personality test tonight. <laughs> yeah, he was ahead of everybody, and 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 the thing that like I think is really um, terrifying is, you know, we're, we're, a lot of us are baked into like MBA thinking and and all this kind of optimizing and this and thating and and productivity. And we keep building these processes to do better and better and better. And what if we're, the processes we build are, are really, really, really optimal? I, that's, that's, the, that's the scary part, right? And, 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 and this is, again, back to the thing of unintended consequences. What are you optimizing? What, are you opt- what do you think you're optimizing? And what are you actually optimizing? And then what's the impact of that on human systems? And and social systems and financial systems. So the really dumb transparent one is like, you know, uh, when you have these flash crashes, right? Mm-hmm. So people are, people are optimizing for one thing and then sell, 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 and, and, you know. And so we'll probably have some kind of terrible flash crash, you know, not, not too far from now would be my guess. But that's, I think that's like the least scary thing. Sure. Well, I mean... <laughs> So, I mean, the, ter- the term cybernetics, doesn't it, it, uh, it's from the Greek, it means governance. So yes. I think that f- the, the concept of cybernetics applied to AI means we need better governance over how it's applied, how it's used. Yeah, I mean, without, without picking a side, I don't think in any country right now we have any philosopher kings. Hmm. Um, so, <laughs> you know, and, and, and I think, and that, that's, that, maybe that's another scary thing about AI is that it's 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 complex technically and it's complex philosophically and scientifically mm-hmm. and and from like a, an ethics point of view that I, how many people can how many people can actually preside over that and yet we're going to put we're going to put uh so much decision making power into the hands of this these machines and mechanisms in the, in the next couple of years and who's going to watch over them yeah or who's even going to understand them even if they were watching it's almost like string theory. Only five people in the world understand it. So, yeah, but, but string theory isn't like running the world economy or like. Oh, true. You know, well, AI isn't <laughs> running the world economy yet either, but it could. Yeah, yeah. But the fortune is a lot more moving parts in the world economy, so it's difficult to to uh, to run that. You talked about um, so we we've covered a lot of ground here, and. One of the last things that we had on our list was the future of work in organizations. And we, we touched on it a bit earlier about how AI will impact tasks, bundles of tasks that make up jobs. But how do you see AI impacting the future of work or, and specifically the future of work around wealth management? This, this goes back to, you know, tying it back to our core mission to upgrade the way that, that wealth advisors provide advice and also the way that that enterprises manage wealth advisors to do this and succeed for both the client and the organization. Um, I think if we look at the past, uh, the way organizations work, it's industrial, it's operative. So this is typified by people dealing with spreadsheets, processing some data. Um, This is what I'm referring to as kind of like the financial matrix and then outputting some decisions. 
So I think in the future, as we talked about earlier, a lot of those things are going to be absorbed into automation and a lot of low-level decision-making is, is going to, to take care of a lot of this fiddling that, that, that people in our industry used to do in the old days. So then it becomes more about the frontline worker being um, a researcher, a frontline researcher for the organization to understand the client base. Um, and not just do research for the specific service they're providing the client, but do research about their client for the organization. So the organization itself, the mother brain or the system of intelligence, as we think of it, mm. can do a better job of what it wants to do. Um, and, and, and there was an announcement, there was this sensational announcement today from the CMO of Salesforce about like marketing campaigns being over. And I think that had something to do with this idea that, um, the future of marketing is is this feedback loop of learning um, from our customers and then upgrading our services for them. So um, the way we like to look at it is is you, you you're sort of creating that bionic frontline worker. You're equipping you're equipping them to uh, pay attention in a better way. And and again, I talked about this earlier. So how can that frontline worker focus on what really matters for the client and for the business? And then how can the business learn about what they're doing and how they could do it better? And how can the business create policies that, that, that promote better service and better results? So the, the real way to think about it is kind of like this big octopus <laughs> with tentacles that, that is always kind of absorbing information from the front line. It's coming up into the, the mother brain. And then the mother brain is dispatching new ways of doing things down into the tentacle. So it's almost like a, an innovation heartbeat. And this is kind of what we're really focused on. And people talk about business intelligence, they talk about CRM, they talk about all this stuff. But what, what I think what they're really talking about is how can we make enterprises be organisms that can continually learn and upgrade their workers. And so it's kind of like this meta level thing. It's not just about buying a piece of software that like makes your guys better by 30%. It's about creating a system it's going to enable your guys to learn and get better all the time. And it's going to enable you to see what's going on and to design policies that are going to make your frontline workers better. So design policy, I think, is, is something I'm going to say again and again and again, because it's, it's the end recent thing. Tasks, forget tasks. We can get robots to do tasks. What we want to do is design policies and then decide which policies to deploy, right? So in the context of wealth management, um, the enterprise might decide that they're going to offer a suite of composable financial plans with insurance and wealth management, and maybe even banking. I would suggest yes, banking. Um, wow. And then they're going to provide these. They're going to provide these dance moves to their advisors, and then the advisors are going to be the ones to be there and choose and evaluate and maybe personalize policies. And then they're also going to be there to learn from their clients about what's working and not working so the organization can get better at what it does. So it's a two-way flow of information. It's like that, it's like that Kundalini, I'm from the West Coast, so it's like that the Kundalini chakra thing, you know, the, the Kundalini stigma <laughs> moves up the spine and then it moves yeah. down the spine, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I just said that so nobody will take me seriously, but no, but honestly, that's, <laughs> that's the metaphor, right? Like information needs right. to flow two ways and that's, in any healthy organism, information doesn't just flow down, it flows up and it flows back. Right? I like that, as it should. And, and, and that's what you mentioned earlier about a feedback loop. Yes, yes. And would that be a way that AI could be used responsibly or used to the best effect is by 
having that feedback loop and constantly adjusting how you're using AI in your organization. Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at the people who are trying to do automated driving, they're not just throwing robot cars out on the road. They got human drivers in there who the robots are learning from, right? So that's a pretty solid metaphor. And there's, there's a reinforcement learning paradigm around that. But even before you get into reinforcement learning, I think there's just the idea that you're humble enough to accept that there's a lot to learn in this space. There's a lot that you can learn before you even start applying a, uh, machine learning to these decisions. So we can kind of illuminate the whole decision, decision space of wealth management so that we're looking at the decisions that are made at every kind of vertex in the system and what value those decisions have at each, each vertex. So at the client vertex, at the advisor vertex, at the branch vertex, at the vertex of people designing new products, right? So I, so think, I think awareness is the commodity and decision-making is the value added. So where does the policy come in? Well, I mean, you can look at, I mean, you can look at policy as probably like a set of dance moves, right? You're not going to have an infinite number of policies. You're probably going to have a finite number of policies and sub policies. You're either going to look at the client situation and the guidance that's been provided by the machine. And you're going to say, yeah, I totally agree with the machine. Let's ship it and go and I'll contact the client and get this done. Or you're going to look and be like, oh, I don't really understand the situation. Maybe we don't have full data. Then you're going to have to go and you're going to have to do research for the client, right? And then you can do the policy. But the important thing is like human lives are heterogeneous and complex. And, and these kind of things cannot be automated at all right now, I don't think. I would agree, and I would agree with that. Human lives are heterogeneous and complex. A very true statement. And a great way to end our discussion. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. Dave did a great job. I, I, if, uh, we, we went from why AI is stupid into Zen and to systems of intelligence. We covered a lot of ground here. It was a big one. <laughs> it was good. I really I want to thank you for being on the podcast and for sharing all this and uh, everything about AI and, and why it is stupid. <laughs> anytime, anytime. I'm always, always happy to drop the hammer on uh, my favorite four-letter word. Even when you're not in the country, when you're, when you're on vacation, you're even willing to, which is impressive. <laughs> I, I'm passionate about it. <laughs> hey, everyone. It's Craig again. Just a few quick items before we go. If you like this episode, please give it a five-star review on iTunes. I would very much appreciate it. And remember to check out the show notes for links to everything we talked about on this episode. For more information on wealth management technology, you can read my Wealth Management Today blog at wmtoday.com. Thanks for tuning in, and I'm looking forward to talking to you all again next week. <laughs>